We're almost halfway through the Gospel of Mark. I'm, I'm excited about that. It's encouraging. I think we're going just at the right pace. This week, we might have, I might have tried to bite off more than I could chew, but uh, the Lord, I hope and pray, will bless this sermon. This is God's Word. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. And now let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, on this sunny day, we are thankful for the sun. But even more, we, your people, rejoice whether the sun is out or not because you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Father, in our ups and downs, in the joys of the Christian life and the hardships that come in the Christian life, you have called us to be a people who proclaim your name. And so we have gathered today to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and to enjoy him as your people, to point each other to the greatness of Christ so that whether a brother or sister in Christ has come in this place weak-hearted with little faith or a brother or sister has come in this place on fire for you, excited to leave this place and tell the world about Jesus and his greatness, that you would meet both brothers and sisters, the ones weak in faith and the ones strong in faith, and you would give them exactly what they need from your word. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would feed your sheep, that Christ would be greater and bigger and more glorious in our minds and in our hearts after we leave, having gone through your word and being pointed to Christ than when we came. Father, we pray that in the hearts that are dead in this place, those people who are walking and somewhat like zombies, just going through the motions, looking for the best that this life has to offer, and yet not having Christ, that you would open their eyes, that you would give them ears to hear like the man in this story, that you would do a great work in their hearts, that they too would join your people and proclaim the greatness and the glory and the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ your Son, and the only Savior for sinners. Father, we pray this knowing that you alone can answer these prayers, that you know every need in this place and every heart, 
and you even know the needs that we don't know. And so we pray, Father, coming to you, our Heavenly Father, and asking these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the focus for the previous two Sundays has been on how Jesus confronted and dismantled the legalism of the Pharisees. So we spent two weeks looking at that, getting into legalism, and talking about the greatness and the glory of the gospel in light of legalism. In our passage this morning, the the focus shifts from the Pharisees and their legalism to the Gentiles, the the non-Jews who were outside of God's covenant people, who didn't have God's word or law, who worshipped idols, and who were in the eyes of the Pharisees unclean. That was even part of the, the deal with Jesus. He was, he was unmasking the, the fallacy of what they viewed as unclean in his confrontation with them. And now the focus shifts to those who most Jews, not just the Pharisees, saw as completely unclean, the Gentiles. After Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, he leaves Israelite territory and he travels deep into Gentile lands. Now first to Tyre, and then to Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, and then back around to the Decapolis. Now, it was a, a roundabout way, something like a big arc, and it would have been about 120 miles altogether, this trip. Now, we can be sure that Jesus didn't leave Israelite territory because he was fearful of the Pharisees. He shows no fear. He comes at them head-on. We, we can be sure that he doesn't leave because he's, he's shrinking back from this argument or he's lost the argument. He's dismantled their legalism. So what is it that causes Jesus to leave Israelite territory and head out into Gentile lands? Well, it seems like it's one of those times where he wants to hone in on his disciples. He's been been confronted over and over again by the Pharisees and other religious leaders, even Herod, and, and not only that, but the crowds have continually come, and, and he's gotten very little time with his disciples. And so he, he seems to be wanting to pull them into a place and go to a place where he can be undistracted and intentionally disciple his disciples. However, Jesus does not seem to be very good at hiding. He wouldn't be the winner at hide-and-seek, I think, because he's constantly found. He goes places, he's trying to hide from people, and, and everywhere he goes, he seems to be found. So either he's not good at hiding, or more likely, God seems to allow those who desperately are seeking after him, wherever Jesus goes, to find Jesus. He is the light of the world, after all. He cannot be hidden, we're told. He even says that about himself. He is the light of the world. The light has now come, and it cannot be hidden. So even when the light wants to hide so that he can focus in on his disciples, this is not going to be a quiet trip for Jesus and his disciples. This morning, as we make our way through this passage, we are first going to look at the two surprising miracles that Jesus accomplishes in this passage. And then second, we're going to consider three enduring lessons that we can learn from this desperate mother and this once deaf and mute Gentile man. And then lastly, we will close with one glorious reality that, that we find in this passage about Jesus Christ that can encourage every single believer and hopefully, ultimately, someone who's coming into the kingdom this morning by God's grace. Now, I know that my counting is a bit off. If you follow that, I'm going two, three, one. So I'm, I'm a little bit off here. And if you're you know, a mathematician, if you've you know, gotten through the first grade, you're thinking, why? What, what's the purpose in this two, three, one? Now, 
recently after, so I'm going two miracles, three lessons, and one glorious reality. Those are, that's our order this morning. That's my flow in this sermon. Now, a few months ago, after I, I gave a, a, a sermon, uh, an out-of-town guest came up to me and approached me, and she thanked me for the sermon, and then she said one of the things that she really liked about it, it was, was that I was all over the place. And, and she meant it as a compliment. She had this smile on her face, like, that's a good thing. And I took it, like, she had a smile, like, it was a good thing. But, but I, I, was, I don't know really what that means. I, I don't know if everybody else that heard that sermon would say the same thing. I hope not. Uh, but she had this smile, so assured me it was a compliment. My intent this morning is not to be all over the place or to be clever, or to be confusing. I do think that the best way to approach this passage, and I, I, again, I said that this is maybe more than I could bite off and chew. Two miracles, a lot going on, a lot to think about and unpack and apply. Un- but I think this, this format of two miracles, three lessons, and one glorious reality is the best way for me to unpack this passage this morning. So two, three, one. So first of all, let's consider the two surprising miracles in this passage. Now, I refer to them as surprising, not because they're surprising in and of themselves. I mean, we've already seen Jesus do miracles just like this, maybe even bigger and more surprising miracles before. So they're not surprising in that Jesus is casting out a demon from a little girl, or he's giving, uh, he's giving the ability to hear to a man who couldn't hear before or speak at least well before this. Um, that's not why they're surprising What's surprising is what Jesus says and does in the context of these miracles. And how these two miracles foreshadow God's great redemptive plan, not just for the Jews, but for the world. And so that's the surprising nature in these miracles. And so even though I'd love to go deeper into some of the details, I want to, to in this section, think about the, the surprising nature and the, the grand implications for these miracles, or at least what they point us to. Now, word had spread about Jesus, and this woman came to seek Jesus' help. She's desperate. She was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, uh, meaning she's from where the, the, the kingdoms of Syria and Phoenicia used to be, so she's part of that people group. Uh, she, this means that she's not only not a Jew, but as Matthew refers to her, she was a Canaanite woman, a descendant of one of the people groups that Israel had fought since they came into the promised land and had been called to fight against and to kick out from the promised land. This is an enemy of Israel, at least in the Old Covenant. We're also told that she is a a mother and her little daughter was plagued by an unclean spirit. And now she has come in hopes that Jesus, this man that she has heard rumors about, the rumors have already spread all the way out to Gentile lands about Jesus, that, that this miracle worker can save her daughter, and so she falls before Jesus. She comes before him and falls down and begs with him. Now, the difference between the Pharisees' response to Jesus and this pagan woman's response is striking. And it's no accident that Mark has this account. Remember, Peter is most likely behind the Gospel of Mark. And it's no accident that right after these interactions with the Pharisees and their legalism, now we are given this striking account of the response of these, these pagans, these Gentiles. This Gentile woman who was completely unclean according to the tradition of the elders sought out Jesus, fell down before Christ, and begged him for his help. Mark tells us that she kept asking, the, the language there is she kept on pleading with Jesus, asking him to cast the demon out. She was respectful, 
but persistent, refusing to take no for an answer. Of course, she reminds many of us of that persistent widow and the unjust judge who would not, say, would not go away from the judge. He, he was unjust. Jesus is not unjust, but this judge in the parable that Jesus tells is unjust, and the widow just keeps on coming, keeps on coming, until finally the judge gives in. And then compare that to the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees chased Jesus out from Israelite towns. They, they had the Torah, they had the prophecies as well about the Messiah and, and who he would, and they didn't connect the dots. And not only that, but here Jesus was standing before them, and rather than fall down on their knees before the King of Kings, they're arguing, confronting, trying to demean him and, and get rid of him. And here this pagan Gentile woman who has only heard rumors and doesn't have the Torah and and, and is outside of the coven, is now at the knees of God in flesh. I mean, just the, the contrast is striking. The most surprising thing, though, I think, about this miracle is Jesus' initial response to a desperate, heartfelt plea from a mother. I mean, it's one of, if just taken on the surface and not unpacked and not thought about, and maybe a, a, a commentary or two or a, some, some older Christian doesn't walk you through, you might say, it's just rude. It's offen- it's, it's one commentator says that if you get this wrong, it's one of the most offensive statements that Jesus has ever made in Scripture. I mean, here's a woman pleading for help for her, her plague daughter who's got this demon who's possessed her, this little girl, and Jesus does what? Look at, the, look at what he says. Verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, that doesn't seem like Jesus, does it? At least not the Jesus that many of us are comfortable with, the one that always minds his P's and Q's, which is a phrase to get at, is very well-mannered, never says anything that offends someone. I mean, the Jesus that is everybody's homie, the Jesus that gets along with everybody who rejects him. I mean, that, that Jesus and this Jesus don't seem to fit because that Jesus doesn't exist in reality. Jesus at times is confrontational. Jesus goes at the heart of things and he says things that that rub people the wrong way. We might say that Jesus is not politically correct. He offended a lot of people. But this isn't ultimately just some offensive statement to rile up this, this widow who's pleading on behalf of her daughter. What's going on here? Why would Jesus refer to this woman and her daughter as dogs? And what does bread being thrown to dogs have to do with casting out a demon from a little girl? Well, as we unpack this a little bit more, I think it's amazing what this all has to do with. To begin to answer these things, we need to first recognize that this is a parable. Sometimes parables are long. Sometimes they're just a sentence. Sometimes there's just one metaphor, and it's picked up as a parable. So metaphor and symbolism is going on in the parables, and it is going on here But still, we can't get around it. I mean, there's no getting around it. Jesus likens this woman and her daughter to a dog. I mean, that's the comparison. I mean, sometimes, you know, there's seeds and parables. There's there's different imagery, you know, lanterns. Like, oh, you know, maybe we don't want to be compared to a light or a lamp. But here, Jesus is comparing or using as a metaphor dogs and this woman and her daughter. In Scripture, dogs are associated with uncleanliness. They ate garbage, and they, they were found eating corpses. 
To refer to someone as a dog was at times a judgment that the person was dirty and dispensable. They were the lowliest of the low in the society, and, and they were like a, 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 one of those wild dogs. I mean, I, here in, in America, we have less of them, but when you travel abroad, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of freaky, and they're, they're nasty looking. I think I heard from some of the people that went on, on the Brazil trip about the dogs and how they just look sad and hopeless and just grungy, and you don't want to touch these dogs. And, and that's the, the type of dog that we find often in Scripture. In Matthew 7, 6, Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So in one breath he's talking about dogs, and then he goes right into pigs, another term that you probably don't want to be called animal that you want to not be compared to, a pig. In Philippians 3.2, Paul refers to those opposing him as dogs. He says, my enemies are like dogs. They are dogs. But here the term dog was, was used, as it often was, as a metaphor to describe Gentiles. Those who were outside of the covenant and worshipped false gods were dogs and not children which refers to Israel, who were God's chosen people. If you remember in Exodus, uh, that's the first place that God calls Israel his child, his son. And, and that, that language of, of sonship is carried throughout the Old Covenant. And ultimately, it's brought to the, to the church, that we are his, his children, we are adopted in Christ. And so, there's this comparison between the dogs and the children in the parable. Now, it, it's helpful, I think it at least lightens up a little bit of the offensive nature that this might seem to have, to know that the Greek word here used for dog in this passage is not the same one that, that is most often used to refer to the mangy street dog that is found in a lot of second or third world countries. Uh, rather, it's, it's the lesser, it, it's used to describe a small dog that could have been kept in a house, so like a, a pet dog. So we're kind of leaving. It's getting a little bit better, right? You're, you're, not, you're not the street dog that's mangy and nasty and, and nobody wants to touch. You, now you're the dog that you know, people keep in their house and say, nice doggy and, and pet on their head and, and, and hang out with and, and feel nice about and, and name you know, after people's names. Like that type of dog, right? So that's getting, getting a little bit better. But still, it's, it's, it's a little bit offensive, it seems. It's not very nice. But this little pet dog language makes sense. If you look at the woman's reply in verse 28, she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And so now she's agreeing and she's saying, yes, like those little dogs that are, that are in the house. I mean, you, you know how it works. In her reply to Jesus, she put the dogs in the house and not just in the house, but where a house dog dreams to be, right? Some of you let your dogs do this, right? You, you have people over and there's dogs, not everybody, you know, some of you make sure the dog stays in or puts it, you put the dog in a separate room, but, but the dog comes to the table and guess, you the dog thinks, might not know the rule that you don't feed the dog at the table, right? And maybe get some, or maybe there's a kid that's invited over and sitting at the table and sees this cute little dog and they're going to get some scraps from the table. Well, that, that's the image there and, and the, the woman goes all in on this. She, she's not offended at all. And, and so the image there is, she, she agrees, is, is, is that, yeah, it's, there are dogs that, that get the crumbs from the children who accidentally drop or, or sometimes purposely put food on the ground for the dogs. She's not offended by the parable. She gets it. She knows that she and her daughter are not Israelites. There's no debate about that. She's, she's a Canaanite woman. And she doesn't accuse Jesus of doing or saying anything wrong. 
She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't pull a Pharisee here and get into a debate with him. But her reply is that like the pet dogs that are fed the crumbs, she too has come to Jesus as undeserving as she is for help from God. <laughs> what a contrast. She is, she, she's saying, yes, I am like one of those dogs in the house and I just want a crumb from God. Now, what does the bread and the crumbs refer to? Now, in the broad sense, we could say to God's provision, his care. He, she has come to Jesus to receive a little help from a big God who, who can very easily make the demon leave her daughter. It's, it's a little thing for a big God to do. The one who can speak everything into existence can easily deal with her daughter's demon problem. But ultimately, the bread and the crumbs refers to much more than that. I believe John 6, 35, and really the whole chapter of John 6 gives us the answer. But if you would just look at John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread that God gives his children, and this woman has come to Jesus and Jesus, the bread of life, will give her much more than a crumb. Much more than a crumb. Jesus gives the woman her daughter back. And not only that, but she has been given Christ himself. He receives her. He, he hears her plea. He accepts her, though she is outside of Israel. The very bread of life who can not only restore a parent to their child, but reconcile an unclean sinner to a holy God has come to her. And she is given more than a little crumb. She has given Christ himself. And so that's what's going on in this parable. There's this, this, this reference to dogs that ultimately is, is not offensive, but it's reality. Israel is God's chosen people. The old covenant made that clear. And here is this outsider, and she's begging for a crumb, and she's given a feast in Christ. Well, the second surprising miracle happens when Jesus leaves Tyre and Sidon and he makes his way to the Gentile region known as the Decapolis. And it involves a deaf man who is unable to communicate. He has a, a speech impediment. Now, the Greek word Mark uses is mogilalos, uh, mogilalos. Now, some believe that this man must have been born deaf. So there's a debate about whether or not, you know, this man was born deaf or he became deaf. And because he was born deaf, it caused him to be mute as well, is, is one side's opinion on this. However, it seems that this man was able to speak to some degree, so other commentators think that he probably was not born deaf, but became deaf at an early age in his life, and that prevented his speech development from, from growing. So he, he could maybe say a few words as a young child, but then before his, he, he could fully develop his language, he became deaf. And that's why it's labeled a speech impediment. Is he's unable to speak like other people because he became deaf later on. Now, whatever it was, we know the man could not hear and he could not speak in such a way that people could understand him. Now, think of the context. First century Israel, there is no cochlear implant. There is no easy fix. Honestly, most of these people, if they did not have a good family, were left out and whether they're Israelites or not, and this man's not, they're just left out like the docks. I mean, if they couldn't be cared for by their family, if they were, they were dead weight, some, some of these people just, just became bums uh, and homeless people. And so this man's lot in life seems very hopeless. But why did Mark make sure to include this detail about his speech impediment? Why was it important to Mark? 
Well, the Greek word translated as speech impediment, mogilalos, is the key to answering this question. This word is found only twice in all of the scripture. Twice. Here in this passage and then in Isaiah chapter 35, when it appears in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it was one that was commonly used in the day of Christ. Now, in the, in the chapters immediately before Isaiah 35, Isaiah pronounces judgment from God on Israel and all the surrounding nations. I mean, the whole section there is, is judgment after judgment. It is bleak, it is dark, it is hopeless, and it is God's wrath on sin. He tells Israel that because of their sin, God was going to bring destruction to their land, and they, along with their Gentile neighbors, were going to go through a season of desolation. And you can get the picture of the judgment if you just read the, the first three verses in Isaiah chapter 34. They won't be on your screen, so either listen or turn to them. 594 in the Pew Bible. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter, their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corp- corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. That's dark. That's destruction. That's God's judgment on sin. And it's to Israel and the surrounding nations. But when God announces his judgment in Scripture, he will often, if not almost always, give a word of a future hope a promise of his mercy because God will not abandon his remnant people to destruction. And that word of hope, that promise of mercy comes in the very next chapter in Isaiah 35, the very chapter where this word used for speech impediment is found, the only other place. And I'm going to read the entire chapter of Isaiah 35 so you can get a sense of it, but I want you to focus in on verses 5 and 6. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon, that's the area that Jesus has just come from, shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our Lord. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. There it is. Mute in that verse is translated in the Greek Septuagint, is the same word found in our passage this morning. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. What a wonderful, even if they're fools, they will not go astray. God has them. He is going to keep them. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. 
Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What a change in a matter of a few verses from, from Isaiah 34 to Isaiah 35. And here is the key. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Here within this passage of hope and in God's promise of mercy, Isaiah tells us in verse 5 that a day is coming when the ears of the deaf, deaf will be unstopped. That just happened in our passage this morning. And then, and, and then right after that, we're told in verse 6 that the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Again, we see that ultimately in our passage this morning. What's the significance of this? It means that this promise of hope, promised long before, centuries before Jesus was ever born, which looks past the destruction and the desolation and the judgment of God to the time when the Messiah would come and the kingdom of God would break through like never before, which has now come. And not only has it come and now only, not only has the Savior, the Messiah come, who gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and speech to the mute, Mark says that these messianic prophecies are being fulfilled, how? In the healing of a Gentile. What a reversal. Those who were inside or who should have been inside with the Pharisees, the ones who had all the, all the benefits of God's word, who, who were entrusted with the scriptures, missed it. And those who were outside, the Gentiles, those who were far, the, the dogs are now being brought in. And not just are they getting the crumbs, but they are now brought into the kingdom and are going to be adopted. It's beautiful. These two surprising miracles foreshadow this reality. Though the focus of Jesus is public ministry, well, he is on earth before his death and resurrection, was on the Jews, the ultimate focus of Jesus' ministry is to the world. One people group is not enough. The nations are going to be gathered and they'll worship at the throne forever and ever. Every tongue, every people group will be there. Jesus has his, his mind and his heart set on all peoples. It's as if this passage in Mark gives us a sneak peek of God's grace, not only for Israel, but for the world. It's like you, if you ever, you know, you watch a trailer for a movie, you're really excited, but you just get a oh, that's going to be good. That's what we're given in this. It's, it's going to be good. It's just a little glimmer, and it's going to go back to the Jews, the focus in, in much of Mark, but, but it'll be there again, that little glimmer. A longer trail, a trailer is given to us in, in further passages in Mark, but that's what we're given here, this little glimmer, this little glimpse of what God has planned for the nations. The Jews were given a unique role in God's plan of redemption, but Jesus has come even for the dogs and even for those who are deaf and mute. He has come to save and reconcile all who will turn from their sin and trust in him. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I believe that these two miracles, what is so surprising about them, is that that is what they are ultimately pointing us to. God's hope for the nations. Well, the Pharisees and scribes teach us how not to come to Jesus. And now we're moving into the three lessons that we can learn. If you, if you want to be far from, from God, the, the Pharisees are a great example for you to follow. Just, just do what they did. 
After all, God in flesh had been standing right before them. The creator and savior of the world had, had confronted their hopeless legalism, had called them out. And rather than saying, you know what? I can't be good enough. I cannot be clean enough. Tell me, Jesus, how can I be reconciled with God? They just dug in deeper. We're going to do better. You, no, you're wrong, Jesus, was their reply. So if you want to be far from God, you just, you just follow the Pharisees. Their beautiful tradition, as they viewed it, had become their soul-destroying prison, keeping them from enjoying Christ and the grace that God has for sinners. Their rules and their laws kept them from grace. They did not see Jesus for who he truly is and chose to stay in their dead religion, refusing to come to Jesus. However, the two Gentiles in this, morning, this morning's passage are great examples of what it looks like to come to Jesus. Now, by come to Jesus, I don't mean... Now, the, in 2013, Forbes magazine voted the, the, the phrase come to Jesus and its longer version, have a come to Jesus moment as the most annoying business slang phrases used in 2013. So I'm not referring to like this, this simply emotional moment or this moment of clarity. I'm talking about meeting God. Come to Jesus, meet God. And these two Gentiles give us three wonderful lessons on how to come to God, how to meet Jesus the right way. Now, in saying this, I don't just mean how we can come to Jesus for the first time. That is, I'm not merely talking about these three lessons are for the non-Christian in their conversion. That's not what I'm saying. Yes, that's, that's definitely true. This is a first time, and I believe these are true every single time. Every time we commune with God, every time we come to Jesus over and over again, not in a rededication, but just as we approach God, I think these three lessons are just as applicable. They are marks, qualities that should be present always in the Christian. First, we are to come to Jesus in humility. Both these Gentiles come to Jesus in humility. What a contrast to the Pharisees who were so full of pride and self-righteousness. The woman fell down at Jesus' feet, meaning she saw him as one with authority, like a king, and that she respected him. And at the same time, her falling down at Jesus' feet was a sign of her, her total dependence on him, an act of desperation in line with her pleading for his help. She didn't care about her reputation. She didn't care who was watching. It didn't matter. She came to the house where Jesus was, and she humbly and rightfully got down, pleaded with Jesus, and, and begged him for his help. No, there was no shame. It was, who cares? I need your help. She came weak and begging for Jesus' help. The deaf man couldn't even come to Jesus on his own. Others had to bring to Jesus this man, which I think alludes in some way to God's sovereign grace. I mean, we can't even find him. We would be we, we are lost apart from God's grace, and we will be forever lost. It takes God coming to us. It takes, it takes godly parents raising their children in a godly home where they preach the gospel over and over, repent of their sin, and tell them of, of the greatness of, of God's forgiveness for their own sin and for their children's sin. It, it, God's using all these different means to, to draw the lost, the deaf, the, the blind to himself. And I think that this man is a picture of that. The deaf and mute man did nothing. Jesus did everything. And friends, we must remember that God owes us nothing. Let that sink in a little bit this morning. 
into our individualistic, pride-driven, self-centered, leaning hearts. Remember, the heart is the source of all the sin that comes out. You know, it's the problem's not out there, as we saw last week. The problem is in here. God owes you nothing. And yet, so many have embraced the very opposite. If God loves me, then he'll give me this or that. He'll, he'll cause me to be married by this date. He'll give me the big house. I mean, it's, it's prosperity gospel junk. You know, if God loves me, then you, you wouldn't do that if you love your spouse. If you love me, you'll do this. You don't play that game. And yet we so often fall into that, that game with God. If you love me, you'll do this. If you really love me. Or not only that, but we'll say we've earned it. Look, I've given up. I've, I've, I'm taking the cross. At least I was for five years, and look what it's gotten me. Persecution and struggle, and, and I sleep less, and, and things are harder, and it takes, now I have to continually repent, not just to you, God, but publicly when I, when I sin. I mean, this is hard, and what am I getting for this? My bank account is lower than that man who rejects you, my whatever. I mean, we, we, we go into these, these thoughts. And that's not Humility. That's us thinking that we are equal with God, equal with Christ, that we are the ones in charge. And again, I'm not talking just about the non-Christian. We Christians can become like spoiled little kids. Now at times, I know that I was one. At times, my own children, I don't think I'm throwing them under the bus when I say this, are, they, they come across as spoiled. I, I've been around really, really spoiled kids. I mean, it's just annoying. Isn't it? Like, give me this. I want that. Give me that. I mean, that's what we become like. And yet, in these two Gentile, far from God examples, we are reminded no, we come to Jesus with humility, remembering that he owes us nothing. If you believe that God owes you something, you will be bitter, angry, and joyless. And so ponder your own life right now. Are you bitter, angry, and joyless, professing Christ, maybe even, you know, at times enjoying Christ and his goodness, and yet you would, and others would probably define you as being bitter or in a season of bitterness and joylessness, that you're an angry person? What's going on? It might be that you think God owes you something, so get off that highway. Take the exit ramp. You took the on-ramp, somehow you're there, and you're bitter, and you're angry, and you're complaining, and you think God owes you something. Get off and get back to the gospel. And what does the gospel tell us over and over? You deserve nothing except God's wrath. And yet what has he done? He has given you his grace. And not only has he just given you this grace that's kind of out there, it's just kind of looming there, waiting until you get to heaven, God hasn't just given you crumbs. He's given you his son. Jesus Christ. You who deserve his wrath now and forever have been made his child, adopted in Christ. And everything is yes ultimately to you that you need in Christ. The promises of God are yes to you. So get off the the prideful, God owes me something highway and get back to the gospel and continually come to God. Come to Jesus humbly in humility. Second, we are to come to Jesus in need. 
The woman came to Jesus in desperation. She needed someone to rescue her daughter. And she turned to Jesus to free her daughter from the hellish demon that was destroying her child. Those who brought the deaf and mute man to Jesus, whether they were friends or family members, knew that he needed Jesus to heal him. That he was a man in need and Jesus could meet that need. This reminds us, or at least should remind us, of of some of the words that we sing. Uh, There's a song, Come Ye Sinners. We sing a modern version of it. It's one of my favorite songs. And the third and fourth verses read this. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. You've got to know you need Jesus. And not just when he justifies you, when you repent of your sin and trust in him for the first time, but you need to know you need Jesus all day, every day, twice a day, and a hundred times tomorrow. You need Jesus the whole time, all of your life. Proud people won't come to Jesus and admit their need for Jesus. They'll try to take care of it themselves. But the reality is that we are in need of Jesus continually over and over again. You and I must come to Jesus as we truly are in need. And so we pray. A person who prays is a person who admits that they need Jesus. Because a person who doesn't pray is just going to handle themselves. I got this one. But a person who is, who is continually brought to prayer, to prayer is, is a person who knows that they need Jesus. That only Jesus can satisfy their deepest need. From salvation to sanctification to assurance to perseverance, it is in Christ that all of these needs are met and will be met. We are in need of Christ constantly, church. If you're not inwardly amening this somewhere in your, I need him, then something's off. And you're coming to Jesus for some other reason than your great need for Jesus. And a final lesson. Now, Mark's account alludes to the woman having faith in Christ. I mean, she comes to him, so you can, well, you can, you can guess that she has faith. But, but Matthew's account tells us plain out that this woman has faith. We are to come to Jesus in faith. Matthew 15, 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What is faith? There are so many good definitions out there. I'll give you this one this morning. Faith is confidence in Christ. This woman had confidence in Christ. He could heal her daughter, and so she came to him, and he did. And what does it mean to have confidence in Christ? It means believing all that he has said in God's word, believing all of the scriptures about Jesus and about you, Friends, we are to come to Jesus the first time and every time in humility, in need, and in faith. The Gentile mother and the once deaf and mute man teach us these things, and we need to learn them. And we close with one joyous reality. One joyous reality. After Jesus healed the man, he commanded those who witnessed the healing to tell no one that he was the one who healed the man. Scott even opened up with that reminder. Jesus is telling people over and over, don't tell anybody. Keep this to yourself. But the more he commanded them, we're told, the more zealously they told others about Jesus. It's like they're doing the opposite. You know, it's like one of the ways, and it's not the best way, and I'm not proud of this, but, but one of the ways we've convinced our youngest son to eat his food is by telling him not to. 
Like, we're just really worried, and it, it's kind of going on with the second son as well. We're just really worried they're not eating enough good food. And so it's not, I mean, we don't want to fall into this forever. Like, we know it's not the best approach, and we work on other ones, and then it's just like he's not eating anything, and, and he needs some food. Don't eat your food. And then, bam, it's gone, right? That, that's kind of how it's working with Jesus and whoever he tells not to do. Don't tell. Boom, they're going to go tell. I mean, I wish it worked like this with us, didn't it? Don't tell people about Jesus, church. Don't, don't do it. When you go to the store and you see that mom who's really struggling, don't tell her about Jesus. When you interact with your neighbor and you, you talk about the Packers and, the, and your garden and how it's not producing like the tomato crop that you wished it would, don't tell him about Jesus. When you're at that family gathering and, and everybody's just, just, you know where they're going right now. As best as you can tell, they're all headed towards cell. Don't tell them about Jesus. I mean, I wish it worked like that, right? They couldn't stop themselves from telling others about Jesus. Mark 7, 37 tells us that they were astonished beyond measure. What does that mean? They were so amazed by Jesus that if you could weigh amazement, which you can't, it's subjective, you can't weigh it. If you could weigh it, you couldn't. Like if you could, in, in some world where you could weigh amazement, it, it, it would break the scale, their amazement. They're so amazed by Jesus. And so rather than keep their lips sealed like Jesus told them, their awe over him came out and they were telling people, he has done all things well. Jesus does everything well. This is the joyous reality. What a joyous reality it is for us, church, this morning. Never, never, never did Jesus do anything poorly in his life. I do things poorly all the time. All the time. But Jesus never does anything poorly. Philippians 2, 8 through 11 tells us that the Son of God became a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Believer, Jesus accomplished everything that God the Father gave him to do. He was completely obedient, keeping God's law perfectly, was determined to go to the cross for sinners, and he laid down his very life so that all who trust in him would be forgiven. He did it well. He did everything well. He saved us from the wrath of God, and he has reconciled us to a holy God. Jesus never fails. He did it all, and he did it well. There was and is nothing left for us to do when it comes to our justification. Jesus Christ has done it, and he has done it well. And not only did Christ accomplish what was needed to save us, in all of his dealings with us, he deals with us well. He has saved us, he is saving us, and he will bring us to the Father. And that's why we do and we can and we will worship him even in the midst of life storms because he does all things well. Scripture tells us just how well Jesus has done and what he has done and the hearts of those who love him, who have known this by their own experience, say amen, amen. He has done everything well. This is the joyous reality for our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we praise your great name. We do rejoice in the work that you have accomplished in your Son. And we thank you for the pictures, these lessons that we can learn from these Gentiles. Father, help us to be a humble people, a people who are needy of Christ.
Oh, Father, help us to be a people who bring faith to you, faith in Christ. For you have given us your Son, you have fed us well, and he has done everything well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.